The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. A very warm welcome this week to the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion and this is this is episode 12 of the podcast, Buzz Cut, and we will get into that in just just a moment, but thank you again for tuning in to the podcast this week. As always, if you do have a question for the show, please shoot me an email at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. It can be about anything we've talked about on the podcast. It could be about something I haven't talked about on the podcast. I don't really mind. But do, of course, shoot me a question if you do want something to be discussed or answered. Let's dive into it this week and we're going to look at first how the market's fared. But also after that, we're going to dive into some trade news some retail news, some banking news, and finally we're going to talk about unemployment and hopefully trying to make a little bit of sense around those figures that came out this week from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. But first, let's start with the market. The ASX 200 was rather flat this week. It was up slightly, 0.25%. Bit of a mixed week each day. There were some good days, there were some bad days. The worst day was Thursday, I believe, and then on Friday we actually had a pretty good day, but overall ended relatively flat. The US markets were didn't fare as well as us. They were down, the S&P 500 down 2.2% and the NASDAQ down 1.1% for the week. And it really, I guess from a domestic point of view, it was really a, a week where the market was reacting to both COVID-19 news, of course, and but also trade spats with China or at least potential trade, sta- trade spats with China. And, you know, if you watch the market and you watch the Australian dollar, it kind of seemed like investors almost couldn't make up their mind about the fact that, you know, on one hand, we have coronavirus being handled quite well on a domestic front and optimistic signs such as businesses opening up and you know, talk of a travel bubble with New Zealand and perhaps Pacific nations, they're all positive signs, of course, and that we're moving in the right direction. On the other hand, there's still a cautious feeling towards the, you know, the potential likelihood or, you know, potentially having a second wave of infections as we do start to open up the country. And more recently, over the last few days, we've been observing this escalation in the narrative between China and Australia, specifically regarding trade and export of barley and beef. The short story here is that China actually threatened tariffs on 80%, uh, sorry, tariffs of up to 80% on Aussie barley exports. And then further to this, I think it was Tuesday, then they came out and said that they're actually going to suspend imports from four specific Australian beef abattoirs. And shortly after this, sort of news came out about the the beef exports our trade minister simon birmingham did sort of jump up and put his hand up and say well actually the beef import suspension was more due to a technicality around labeling and it's actually something that's apparently come up before as an issue so i'm not quite sure how serious that specific problem is but obviously there was just concerns overall that this has come about you know within hours of the actual announcement of potential uh, tariffs on australian barley exports and I guess the concern here for Marcus is that is this just the beginning of a ramp up of escalations against Australian exports? And is this because of our government 
supporting the notion of an independent investigation into the origins around COVID-19. And I mean, it's worth reminding that it's not like our government is unique in having that position. You know, the, that P, our PM has actually joined the sort of chorus, which has come from the EU and the US into looking, you know, in, in behind, <laughs> I guess, what happened to, to lead up to coronavirus and was there mishandlings in terms of communication from China, especially in the early stages. Now, China have stated publicly that these moves have nothing to do with Australia, making noise about COVID-19 investigations, but you know, effectively investors are, are drawing that dotted line themselves between the two events and displaying a bit of concern that this might actually get a bit uglier before it gets better. However, I also have some good information here that kind of provides context around these two trade exports specifically and just, I guess, Australian trade in general. And this information comes from Comsec, so it's specifically from their Week in Review podcast, which came out on the 15th of May and hosted by Stephen Daglian. He mentioned that barley is Australia's 24th largest export, so not our, not our biggest, but beef itself is, is actually a bigger ex- export. It's, it's, in our, uh, it's in our top 10 exports, but for context, it actually only makes up 2% of what we export overseas. And I'm quoting Stephen here, but it's the lion's share of Aussie exports are commodities such as iron ore and natural gas and coal, which altogether, all three of them actually make up 70% of the total exports of Australia. Isn't that a crazy, crazy, crazy statistic? So 70% is, is just iron and coal and, and natural gas. So things from the ground. But he also notes that or in the, in the podcast, Stephen note, notes that just how important China is as a trading partner for Australia. And they are, of course, our biggest trading partner. For example, in the month of March, we sent about $15 billion worth of exports to the US, which sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But we sent about $150 billion worth of exports to China in the same month. So 10 times more than that. So hopefully that provides a little bit of helpful information about sort of what the sort of drums were this week. It kind of seems to be an ongoing situation. So perhaps by the time you listen to this, things will change, but you might have a better understanding around all that. What else tickled my fancy this week? Australia, or one of Australia's grooming retailers, Shaver Shop, which you might be familiar with their stores inside shopping centers. They actually announced some pretty remarkable results to the market this week. So they're, they're publicly traded think their code is SSG and of course on one side of the coin they are a bricks and mortar retailer who have had to you know close up shop due to COVID-19 just like many other retailers across the country but their other channel which is online sales that's actually seen a huge surge in in sales coming through and I'm taking this bit from their trading update Quote, online sales increased by 387% in the six weeks from 1st of April 2020 to 10th of May 2020. Also adding that this has had, this has more than offset the material sales decline experienced across the physical store network. And so what they actually sort of pinpoint this to is they, they attribute it to this huge consumer interest in, their, in sales of, of DIY grooming products. So there you go, every guy out there, and I know a couple myself personally, who completely shaved their head at some point in March or April, congratulations. Thank you for your service because 
I guess shares in Shaver Shop are up 30% this week off the back of that. No, for context, I don't own shares in Shaver Shop, but it was an interesting little bit of news and kind of like a story that's contrary to a lot of the retail sector, which is struggling, but they seem to have been held up quite well by everyone's sudden desire to shave their head. In more market news, CBA came out with a, just a market update this week, which is kind of important considering the biggest bank in Australia. And I'm not going to stick around on it too long, but I wanted to touch on a bit of key information, which is about customer support measures and the number of loans in Australia that have, have been put on hold effectively and had their payments deferred for now. So CBA numbers came in at about 144,000 home loans at a total of 50 billion and just over 70,000 business loans at a total of about 15 billion uh, that have been had their payments deferred, that is. And I had to go back and actually remind myself of the number of loan deferrals that the other banks have also announced because when they did their half-year sales updates over the last couple of months, they've actually released this information too. So I looked at Westpac, so they acknowledged 105,000 Australian mortgage accounts put on hold, which is a total of $39 billion of, of home loans. And then they had 31,000 business loans at 8.2 billion. NAB had 70,000 home loans deferred, which is 26.5 billion and 34,000 business loans at 17.4. And just finally, ANZ had 105,000 requests for home loan deferrals. So 36 billion and then 7.5 billion worth of business loans, although they didn't seem to state how many customers that specifically was, or I couldn't find it at least. So if you do some quick maths on this, and that uh, you get 424,000 home loan customers across the big four banks who have requested payment deferrals, and that's at a total loan value of about 150 billion. And then you've got 135,000 business loans or business loan customers at a total of about $50 billion. So in total, you've got about $200 billion worth of loans. And like I sort of said before, that's just across the big four banks. So I haven't looked at other banks outside of that. So it'd be a little bit more. And I guess the, the reason I'm honing in on this point is it's important to remember this is all temporary. You know, at a certain point, the banks are going to stop this and they're going to ask people to actually start to continue paying their home loans and I guess at worst there might be situations where people are going to have to sell their property and this was kind of reiterated in an article in the AFR yesterday which was called clock ticking on loan holidays and wage subsidies and they quote the total loan balance of deferred payments as 220 billion which is a little bit more than the 200 billion I calculated before uh, across the big four banks but as the title of the article kind of says this is also not just about that, but, but about the government stimulus and sort of how long that's going to last. And I know the federal government have, of course, said it's not like these measures will be around forever. And from the same article, the numbers of people under government subsidies, they have the numbers in at 6.1 million Aussies enrolled in the JobKeeper subsidy. So 6.1 million there and 1.6 million on JobSeeker. So that brings it to a total of 7.7 million at the moment being supported by government welfare which kind of neatly somewhat segues into kind of one of the main discussions this week or that I wanted to have this week which is around unemployment and sort of what the figures that came out from the ABS meant this week uh, what I guess you should probably be paying attention to that's 
not always that clear in just the specific unemployment rate and sort of how this seems to be playing out in Australia. So this week we finally saw some hard data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics on employment or unemployment in Australia. And before I talk about the news this week around Australian unemployment levels and what those figures were, I think it would be best to actually break down exactly how this stuff's measured because it's not as clear as you might think and it's good for you guys to actually have an understanding of what the actual unemployment percentage means, what terms such as underemployment mean and and what the labour force means. So in Australia, I guess effectively, well, I guess effectively everywhere, not just Australia, but in Australia, we're just going to talk domestically. You have a certain percentage of our population, so X amount of the population that are of working age, in quotation marks. So we're not talking about someone that's two years old. Obviously, they can't work a job. We're just talking about people who are of working age. Now, you can split this group of people into two groups. You've got the labor force, and then you've got everyone else, so people not in the labor force. So people, when I say people not in the labor force, I'm talking about people that are retired. I'm talking about people that are unable to work. For example, they might have a disability. That means they can't work. I'm talking about, uh, say, a student who's doing full-time university and, and doing that instead of working or they don't have to work and they're not working. And then I'm talking also about people who, I guess, could be working, but they're not actually looking for work. So a good example of that is, so maybe you've got a parent who's 35 years old and they are capable of working, but they've chosen to actually raise their family at home instead. So they're also included not in the labor force because they're not looking for a job. And then the other factor, I guess, that could cause people to fall under the not in the labor force category. And you see this talked about sometimes is people who would like to work, but they're not looking because they've become frustrated, like they've tried to look for a job, etc., and they and they've just decided to give up for a little bit. Okay, so that's that's the other that's the other part of the two groups of the of the uh, working age population. So that's the non-labor force. So now, now we're going to talk about the labor force, and the labor force itself is actually comprised of two two parts. So you've got employed people. And this could be people that are full-time, it can be part-time, but we'll sort of expand on that in just a second. And then you've got unemployed people. And now the key difference here when I'm talking about unemployed people in the labor force is these are unemployed people who are actively seeking employment. And that's the sort of key term there, actively seeking employment, which is different to say some of the examples I listed off before, such as a parent who is staying at home because they're not technically an unemployed person under this definition because they're not actively seeking employment. Now, the first criticism, I guess, of employed persons and how this is measured by the ABS is the Australian Bureau of Statistics says to be considered an employed person under their measurements, you have to have been in a paid job for at least one hour for a week. (laughs) So... Yeah, so that's 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 how it's measured. It's just one hour for a week. So, and of course, nobody in their right mind would stand up and say, "Yep, that's sensible." And you know, you could definitely pay your rent and all that kind of stuff with one hour of work. Of course, that's that's not the case. But that's the definition, and that's why we also have terms such as underemployment, 
which refers to people who are employed, but they would like and they are chasing more hours than they currently work. So you might have someone who's like a casual or part-time, but they really want to be full-time. They don't want to be part-time. And all this, this data that the ABS works on, it's basically comprised from a survey of about 50,000 Australians. And that's their sample that they go and get these measurements from to, to release. All right, so let's recap that just quickly. So you've got employed persons in Australia. So that's you know somebody who is employed working at least one hour in the week. You've got unemployed persons in Australia. That's someone who is, of course, unemployed, but they're actively looking for work. And those two groups, the employed persons and the unemployed persons, they fall under the labor force. And that's measured by the participation rate. So that's the percentage of that working age population that are in the labor force. And then you have underemployed people. So people who can and would like to work more, but they're not, or they can't get that extra work. And then finally, you've got people not in the labor force. So people not looking for work, you know, so retirees or something like that. All right. <laughs> are you following along? I hope you are. It's it's a good thing to understand and it's going to make a little bit more sense when we talk about the actual numbers that came out this week and you'll be able to understand future numbers when uh, the, I guess people on the news and stuff are talking about the unemployment rate. So, so the ABS came out this week and this is how their numbers have come out. The unemployment rate increased to 6.2%. Now, so 6.2%. So now on face value, this might be a, hey, that's not so bad situation. But of course, it's it's worth digging a little bit deeper on the data and looking under the hood, especially now that we've sort of learned a little bit about the way it's measured and also about some of the other important indicators that are worth looking at. Okay, so this is the first bit, which is kind of a bit confusing at first. So it says the number of employed people fell by 600,000 people and the number of unemployed people rose by about 100,000. Okay, so I'm going to repeat that. So you got the number of employed people fell by almost 600,000 and the number of unemployed people rose by 100,000. And no, you're not going crazy. It does kind of sound like a paradoxical statement. It's, it's a bit, doesn't seem to make much sense. But remember, there's this thing called the participation rate and that's the percentage of working age people that are in the labor force. So this actually decreased the participation rate decreased by 2.4%. So people left the labor force. Now, further to this, the underemployment rate, which is, remember, the people who would like to work more than they currently are, that jumped from 8.8% in March to now 13.7% in April, which is quite a big jump there. So, And so that's kind of two key points that lie under the hood of this unemployment rate, which is worth understanding. Even if you're not like an investor or someone that's sort of watching the markets or economic indicators, but it's just worth understanding just generally speaking. I think the other insight that's worth mentioning off the top of all this data is the amount of hours worked by those that are employed. So this actually fell by about 9.2% between March and April. So the amount of hours worked by those who are employed, and it's not because people are lazy, of of course, and this is something important to keep in mind because I actually know people who have been affected by this personally where they are fortunate enough to have actually kept their job, but their hours were actually cut 
uh, by say 20%, 30% or you know, they might say, oh, look, you're only going to work four days this week instead of uh, five days. So that kind of thing. And that's important to keep in mind because whilst these people are employed, that is income that they have lost forever. That is super contributions that they have lost forever. That is potential savings that they wanted to put away to buy a house or whatever it is, go on holiday that they just won't have anymore. And in case you were also wondering, people on the JobKeeper package, they are classified as employed. And I'm sure if the JobKeeper didn't exist, there would be a much higher base unemployment rate right now. But I guess from my point of view, the picture is not as rosy as it kind of looks on face value and and seeing those spikes in underemployment and hours lost are quite concerning and, and worth sort of following over the coming months as this plays out. Well, that was unemployment. Hopefully you're not asleep. Hopefully that was <laughs> somewhat informative and made a bit, little bit of sense. If it didn't make sense, maybe you need to hit rewind by six minutes or so and and try and listen to it again. But that was something I was watching this week and something I'm going to continue to watch. And I know that we've been to- uh, talking a lot about the unemployed persons in the US this week, but it's interesting to see this uh, data actually roll on uh, through to show sort of what the effect of COVID-19 has had on the labor force in Australia. Finally, I had a, a, a quick listener question from a Brian in Queensland, which uh, he asked a question about a topic I talked about last week, which was um, capital raisings with shares. And it, it was a bit of a long question, but I'm just going to shorten it here, which was basically, you know, is there a circumstance where you shouldn't engage in a capital raising? And he, he was kind of asking, well, if there's a capital raising of a company that you're invested in, is, is it a fact that you just may as well engage in it because you're going to get slightly diluted with more shares entering the market, so you may as well, is, is kind of what his question was. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. I, it's a hard question to really specify because I guess, and I'm not trying to avoid the question, but the, the answer, at least in my eyes, is that it depends heavily on the company you're invested in. I think, and this is just an example, I'm, I'm not a shareholder in NAB. I've never, never been a shareholder in NAB, but we mentioned that uh, NAB have actually uh, under they've started a capital raising and part of this is probably to fund the fact that they're still paying a dividend but they've done a capital raising where investors in NAB so people who already own shares in NAB they can actually apply for some discounted shares in the company now I think if that was me so if I'm already the existing NAB shareholder of course the banks have suffered pretty heavily over uh, the past few months and, and companies like NAB have basically like halved in price and their share price. I think I think in those kind of scenarios, I'd be inclined to participate in, in the capital raising of a company like NAB just because I guess on one hand, I'm probably owning those shares for the long term because it's a, a big Australian bank. Granted, you're not going to get tons of growth in the share price out of a bank like that, or sorry, not a bank like that, but out of a, out of a share like that, the, the banks are very much known for their, for their dividend income. And so I guess if you're happy with holding that company for the long term, I guess it does make sense for you to actually take up this entitlement and grab some ch- uh, shares at quite a significant discount to what you've probably bought the shares for. So that kind of makes sense for me. But then on the other hand, if you have a company, and I'm not, I don't know, I'm not 
specifically thinking of any here, but if you've got a company that's struggling, so financially struggling, and they do a capital raising, which is, I've seen that before, and you, and you sort of see that with companies that aren't profitable, so they don't have good cash flow coming in, so they might be more in that uh, initial research and development stage of, of their life cycle, and they will do capital raisings effectively to stay alive. And so there you're making the decision, well, do I believe this company is going to be successful in their future? You know, what kind of cash are they burning through now? You know, how long is this capital raising going to last them before they have to do potentially another capital raising? So I get your question, Brian. I don't have a specific answer for you because I think it, at the end of the day, it just depends on the company you're holding. If you're invested in a company and you believe in that company and its fundamentals and you're prepared to hold that for the long term, then I think they do make a fair bit of sense to invest in because you can effectively pick up some shares uh, at a discount and without paying brokerage fees too because you're not actually doing it through a stockbroker. You're just usually it's through like a BPAY or something that you actually apply for a capital raising. But yeah, so you kind of have to my answer would be you kind of have to look at it, you know, the, the situation of that specific company. You know, is this a company that's in distress or potentially going to be in distress? And is this a lifeline or is this a company that's, you know, using this to further their growth or, or shore up the books and you're comfortable with holding uh, them for the next, you know, five, 10 years? I hope that provides some help. Um, yeah. If you do have any further questions, shoot them through. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 12. I'd love you to support the podcast with a rating and review, of course. And I know I bang on about that all the time, but if you can drop a review on your respective podcast listening platform, do it. Get your mum to do it. But the best compliment, of course, is a recommendation. So if you have some friends who might be interested in what I'm doing here, then by all means, please let them know about the show. My name is Dion. This is the Market Pulse podcast. Have a great week and we'll check in next week.